0: Welcome to The Endgame, a podcast about the positive aspects of aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I'm your host, Don Auction. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get on with today's show. On today's podcast, we'll hear from an entrepreneur who created not just a business, but an industry. But first, we enjoy a moment of lyricism from a celebrated Baltimore poet, Jacqueline Oldham
1: The Elders The last of the elders are fading away from this world. Their minds and bodies betray the frailty of age. Lives well lived, now bone weary. Uncle just turned 100 last month, finally reaching his happy Alzheimer's wish uttered at random these last ten years, I'm going to be a hundred. His wife, nine years his junior, and the last paternal blood aunt, rolled into the party on a reclining gurney. Her steady gait, her artist's flair, her joie de vivre destroyed, by late-stage Parkinson's, her once strong voice now a whisper. The elders on the other side send telepathic messages. The smells of great-grandma's kitchen inhaled as I twilight nap on the couch. Mother's aura wraps around mine as I go about my daily chores or stand frozen in a moment of fear. When I walk into a room, family members gasp. You look so much like your mother, I thought I was seeing her ghost. When I look in the mirror, I see my mother's face hairline slightly receding at the temples, the shape of her mouth now mine. My speech just like my father's, words and cadence the same. Even the shape of my knuckles is his and the way I rub my brow. What say you to me my elders? Have I passed your everlasting test? Am I now fit to be one of you? Will you greet me with love and kindness when at last I am at rest?
0: You can find more of Jacqueline Oldham's poems and essays at baltimoreblackwoman.com. Our special guest today on The Endgame is Margit Novak. Margit is an entrepreneur and a thought leader in the field of aging. Margit founded her company, Moving Solutions, in 1996, and today is widely recognized as the founder of the senior move management industry. In 2020, she left the formal work world and began a new role as author, speaker, and champion of a revisioned picture of aging. She is the author of the book, Squint, Revisioning the second half of life, Margaret. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Creating a successful business is a great accomplishment, but founding an industry—wow, that's pretty extraordinary. Do you have any? Did you have any idea at the time that this would be the result when you first started moving solutions?
2: I think in my initial months, I did not. But by the time I had been in business for a year, I began to see some of the important issues that working with an older population led to. As I saw people getting interested in getting into this business and starting senior move management companies in cities around the US, I realized that we were starting what would become a new industry. We thought about a code of ethics, that was our primary concern, We were excited about opportunities for collaboration with other people who shared our passion. We wondered if there might be opportunities for research with some some academic organizations that were interested in work with older adults or issues of transition in later life. So we had many reasons for forming the organization, but I think the chief one was developing a code of ethics so that That would guide members because there are many black and white issues. And we saw that we were dealing with a vulnerable population and dealing with their belongings. Mm. And this for us was a formula where unscrupulous people could get involved. And we wanted to make sure we were stating what the values of the industry should be.
0: Great. Move management sounds on the face of it like a very business-like efficient service, but I get the impression your scope got a lot broader and maybe fuzzier uh, once you got into it. Is that, is that a fair statement?
2: It's a very fair statement. Um, We used to say we didn't move things. We moved a lifetime and that often was what we were doing. It isn't that people took everything from their lifetime, but they had a lifetime of things in their home that they needed to go through and decide what would go with them in their new life, um, what would happen to things that weren't going with them. We invariably heard lots of wonderful stories from people about different periods of their life. I would be with someone who um, had significantly limited visibility. And as we were taking a tour through the apartment, I remember someone saying, These oil colors and watercolors are what I used to do. But as I started losing vision, I moved into charcoals and I literally in walking through their home was able to see how they continued their passion, even as their abilities changed. Um, I would see pictures of people in armed forces uniforms and it, and recognize that I was looking at one chapter in what was a long book. And it was a very good reminder of how rich the other chapters were. And there was often a lot of richness in this chapter. And that was the other thing that we saw. Uh, I think often family members got too wrapped up in, deficits that people had. And we didn't know who they were years earlier. In some ways, we could accept them just as they were. We were sort of meeting them in the moment and saying, let's work together as a team.
0: Your uh, new book is called Squint. Uh, Can you explain what the title means?
2: Someone asked me if if it was like Malcolm Gladwell's blink. And I said, well, I would love to be compared to Malcolm Gladwell, but It's not. Um, uh, (laughs) Squint is an artistic ploy that artists um, have used to focus on a particular part of their artwork and make other things not as, uh, change the perspective of some of the others. They might blur so they could look at a particular part of their artwork. And the the idea of the multiple squint was looking at multiple pieces of art for trends. And in a way, that's what I was doing with a lot of my looking back at my life. I was focusing on particular periods and memories. Um, And just as an artist might get some aha moments from, from using the artistic ploy of squinting, I had aha moments from a changed perspective, looking back at them at this age is what I think gave squinting or its power for me. It's that I looked back with a different perspective.
0: Okay. I have seen the book described as a memoir, although personally I found it to be much wiser and more provocative than I would come to expect from a memoir. Uh, I also know it's not a self-help book, but I thought that a lot of the stories... You tell have lots of practical applications for our lives, uh, particularly in the area of family relationships. So what were you what was your motivation or what were you attempting to do with the book? Or is it self-help? Is it memoir? Is it inspirational? Is it some great big gumbo of all of them?
2: Yeah, in some ways it's a little bit of all of that. When I looked back at my life, I realized that my stories were actually part of larger stories. Um, so many of them, whether it was looking at the last time I interacted with my mother, the last time I felt mothered by her, or um, how I reinitiated engagement with my a brother from whom I'd been estranged, I would look at uh, information about family estrangements. Were there other people like me who had lost touch intentionally, lost touch with family members, and what happened to us? And how many people ever reestablished connections? And I, I found that so many things that I observed in my own life or in clients' lives were parts of much bigger stories. So i would I would learn. I would have aha moments in understanding that my story was part of a bigger story and sometimes I would have learnings about it and observations and storytelling is a wonderful medium because it's self-help in the best way I think people get into the story by listening to someone else's story they often think back to or connect to their own story including emotions they don't often go to and It's the best way to learn or change because it doesn't feel like you're being taught something or someone is proscribing some direction. No one's saying you should do this. You need to do that. You're hearing someone else's story, but you're thinking about your own life and your both your past and your future at the same time. So I think it is a storytelling that yes, it's part memoir, Uh, Part inspiration, part social observation. I think it's a little bit of all of those.
0: One of the stories that you tell in the book concerns your grandmother, who was very negative toward you and and how you had to, as you called it, detach with love. Uh, Could you share some of that? Because that one moved me quite a bit.
2: Um, My grandmother came to this country when she was... Uh, 29 she left her she was widowed at 21 with two children in budapest hungary and in 1929 where more people left the united states than entered uh, she made a decision to leave hungary left her two children with her parents to make a better life in america she came knowing virtually no english she um found her way I, i have the biggest respect for all immigrants Um, Married someone, was able to bring her children over. It was during the height of the Depression. Um, She raised these two children and her son became a doctor. She was tremendously proud of that. Her daughter married a pharmacist. They got homes in the suburbs. Um, And she really lived the life of the American dream of having succeeded. And um, she found a lot of meaning. She was married three times. Um, She became very involved in things. She was a strong woman with a lot of opinions. During her life, she buried first her son from cancer, a long illness, uh, then her daughter from cancer, and then she buried a granddaughter from suicide. She had a lot of sadness in her life. Um, And through all of this, she was a strong and opinionated woman. Most people... Didn't experience her as negative, but she was very negative toward me. Um, I think she probably had been a challenge for my grant for my mother. And after my mother died, some of her need to provide advice, guidance, and opinions passed to me. And in the book, I give a, I give examples, and she could be very funny. You know, you can't marry a divorced man. There's no juice left. And my husband says, "Yes, he has juice." Um, but some of them, many of them were not nice. And I would usually just laugh them off. She would say, I I would go, I I just got my haircut. And she would say, really? Most people try to look better after a haircut. And I did think they were funny. But not, but often not. She thought my wedding invitations were cheap. She told me so. And she called my wedding, not fit for pigs um, at the the day after the wedding, when she called up and wanted, and I hear, I thought she'll, I'm finally married. She'll be so happy. Um, she wanted the name of the better business of the caterer to report him to the better business bureau. And I think something in me said, that's enough. For years, people had said, why do you tolerate her behavior toward you? And I said, she's had a hard life. She buried her children. She can't change. And she was 89 years old at that time. And I believed that was the case. But when she called up about my wedding the day after, I said, you can't do this. You can't come to my wedding and then criticize it. And she said, I'm only telling you the truth because I love you. I said, that's not love. She pulled the big, you know, trump card. Don't worry, I'll be dead soon. And I started crying. I don't want you to be dead. But I, I really mean it. This can not You can't continue to criticize my wedding. And I think it was the first time I had put my foot down on her comments. So she cried and I cried. And she never talked about my wedding again. Um, and now she gave lots of other opinions, like how I was not raising my children properly, but she never talked about my wedding. And what I thought about afterwards was how I had kept her at arm's length for so much of my life in order to not be hurt by her comments. I didn't take them seriously, but I also didn't... I think that kept me from being close to her. I treated her sort of as a caricature, and we didn't have serious conversations. And I thought I was a young woman at 32, getting married, who had no parents alive. And she was an old woman who had no children alive. By keeping her at arm's length, we both lost. Maybe if I had detached with love earlier, if I had set boundaries, set limits earlier, we might have had a closer relationship that would have been richer for both of us. And it, that was a new perspective for me. I don't believe that, on all these years until I was writing the book, that I thought with sadness that there could have been something wonderful for Anya and me. We called her Anya, which is the Hungarian word for for mother, um, and it made me think about the the idea of detaching with love, setting boundaries for challenging relationships versus backing off and having very little relationship. So um, I can't redo that. She died at uh, 30, 34 years ago. But it made me think a lot about the wisdom of setting boundaries with challenging people rather than losing the possibility of that relationship. I'm going to thank you for asking me about it. Because there are times when an author gets real aha moments. And in writing her story, I had aha moments.
0: Hmm. You had another challenging relationship that you describe in the book, which is with Bubby, who uh, you ended up having an intervention with. That could not have been easy.
2: Um, Bubby was my mother-in-law. And what Don is talking about is... um, after her husband died, an occasional use of medication of Valium became more frequent. And by the time she was in her 70s and late 70s, she was using it very frequently, small doses all day long. Um, she, We had seen her change during her 70s from a very outgoing woman who was very involved with other people and life. To someone who became almost agoraphobic, seldom going out, more rigid in her ways, um, more critical of people. And when she went into a, a small senior living community, we faced a time when we decided should we have an intervention? She was unhappy at that community. She'd been unhappy living with us. She was unhappy not living with us. And we, We offered to build a little apartment for her. And she said, if you do it, it will make me sick. We said, but you're miserable. She said, I know I'm miserable. Leave me alone. Well, my husband, um, we did, we persevered in spite of that. And we started building the little apartment and she got sick. And she was hospitalized. And she called us on the phone and said, bring me Dr. Kevorkian's phone number and a pad of paper and my pill of Valium, my box of Valium. We called her doctor and said, she's going to commit suicide. He said, no, she won't. And that day, my husband um, fired that doctor and found another one who agreed that Bubby was using too much of a medication that was not impacting her in a good way. And uh, this doctor believed as we did that she should get off of Valium onto a geriatric dose of a medication like Zoloft. And since she was hospitalized, the doctor said, we can control what medication she takes now. We won't be able to do that when she leaves. So against her will, Bubby was taken off of Valium and put on Zoloft. And during this detox period, My husband was with her twenty every day from the time she woke up until the time she went to bed. She was angry, really angry at him. And I don't know how he persevered the verbal abuse she gave him during that time, but he believed in what he was doing. We brought her home back to her apartment. And at first she seemed disoriented and we were going, oh my God, what have we done? She may have been miserable but she was certainly not disoriented but a few days after she got back the the confusion the disorientation lifted and she was exceedingly pleasant and saying how much she liked the apartment and she asked us about the change in medication she wasn't mad about it she said i wasn't very happy on valium was i And she said, I'm better now. And she thanked us. And over the next 10 years, she often said, these are the best years of my life. And we think back to how hard that decision to intervene was. And we're really grateful we did because the last 10 years of her life were not only wonderful for Bobby, they were wonderful for all of us around her. She was my muse for writing. She had wisdom. She was the family matriarch. And all of that was possible because she was, much of that was possible because she was no longer continually self-medicating with Valium. And it is very hard to intervene with any family member if you feel they are taking a drug that is not good for them. And especially when that's a parent who you are taught to respect and obey. Um, and yet we felt we were doing the right thing. Now, for some adult children, it's not going to be about a medication. For some adult children, it could be their safety living in their home or their ability to drive. We we face responsibilities as adult children saying, this is the mother that or the, the mother or father that, that took care of me that I respect. How do I how do I show my respect as an adult child? What are my obligations? And um, I there's no silver bullets here and there is no easy answer. We feel we did the right thing, and we we will also say it was a really, really hard
1: decision to reach.
0: It sounds hard. I'm I'm trying to imagine my reaction when my children take my car keys away. It's not going to be good, but uh, it'll probably be time when they do.
2: Car. Everyone thinks about car keys because it is the quintessential loss of independence. But there's also stepping in, saying you need to have grab bars next to your toilet, or or a comfort high toilet seat, or you need to get things off your stairs, or get gets one floor living. I mean, there are lots of things besides driving and the question change is hard for us. And the question is adult children is to what extent do we provide advice or how vocal are we in our advice to our parents? To what extent do we allow them to live the life they want to live? Um, and there it's not an easy answer.
0: No, thank you. Uh- One of the pieces of wisdom that you seem to have gained from move management had to do with how attached we get to things. I would imagine that that comes up a lot uh, when you're, when you're moving a household. Can you talk a little bit about how you have, uh, have figured that out?
2: The attachment to things always comes up when people are downsizing, um, They are attached to the things that they consider valuable. Um, They are attached to things that have emotional value that might have come from their family members, things they inherited. And even if these don't have a lot of material value, uh, they may have emotional value. So they're attached to both material value or things they perceive as having material value. Um, This was a $5,000 sofa. It may be worth nothing now because people don't want to buy a used sofa Um, (laughs) or sets of dishes. This was my mother's Rosenthal China, but nobody wants Rosenthal sets of China now. Sets of Rosenthal set of China. So um, part of the guidance I would give people um, was to take a part of something and let it represent a whole. Sometimes they could take, one serving piece and have that represent an entire service so people didn't feel they were giving up an entire collection they would still have some parts of it sometimes um, i would think about my own experience with my mother's cake plate or her china and this really helped me understand ways to guide my clients um, after my mother died, one of my favorite things was a glass cake plate that she used to use. And whenever I, after she passed away, it became my go to cake plate. Whenever I baked, I would use it. And I went to a party with a cake one day, and there was a lot of cake left over. So I said, I'll get the cake plate later on. And the next day, I get a phone call Hi, Margaret. Please tell me this cake plate wasn't a family heirloom. And I said, well, it belonged to my mother and she's dead. And it was one of my favorite things. And there was this long silence. And then I said, but my mother is in my heart and my mind, mm. not in a cake plate. What was I going to say? It was pretty clear the cake plate was kaput. But I realized it was true. My children never knew my mother. That would never mean to them what it went to me, but I realized something much more important. My mom came to Europe, uh, from Europe to America when she was 12. She was put back a year in school to learn English. When she was 16, she got tuberculosis and she spent a year in a sanitarium. So when she got out, she was now two years behind and she didn't finish high school. Yet I grew up knowing I would go to college um, and also knowing how much it bothered my mother that she didn't have an education. She would meet the parents of friends of mine and say, I know I didn't go to college, but I think I am just as smart as they are. And she was so smart and she loved literature. And when I was in middle school and high school and college, I would often get an extra book of what I was reading and share it with her. So we talked, we both read How Green is My Valley, um, when I read *Liberty* Petit Prince in French, she read it in English. We cried over things to get over literature together. And I realized if I wanted my children to know, understand their grandmother and have some appreciation of who she was, they wouldn't get that from my passing on, oh, passing on a cake plate that she owned. They will only get that from my sharing stories about her that I had been thinking about physical things as representing my mother. And it is the stories that I want my children to know. Um, And I realized that stories are exactly what we pass on. They become part of our our personal narrative. Uh, And we worry, we safeguard the wrong things because we're focusing on things when we really need to pass on the stories. And uh, I would often tell this story to clients, because just as we talked about the power of stories, after I talked about the cake plate, I didn't need to say to them, you don't need the service of China. They said, I don't need the service of China. And often after they told the story of something, they would say, I have the story. I don't need the item. One of the things that move, that, is, that move managers are very good at, we're very good at listening to stories. And while adult children may roll their eyes thinking, oh God, not this story again, we haven't heard the story. And we know the story has a purpose. The purpose is for our client to recognize that they will still have the story with them. It was amazing how often telling a story freed them up to let go of the item because they realized they had what the, what the item represented in the story. So um, yes, people are very attached to things, um, but often they, they begin to realize it is the story. And that's one of the benefits of working with someone who was a good listener of those stories.
0: Terrific. So now that you have created a business and created an industry and written a book and are more or less retired, what happens now? What do you see for yourself in the next uh, 30 to 50 years?
2: The next 30 to 50 years. Um, I'm still evolving that. I thought I would be someone who would go, who would need to go right from my life at Moving Solutions to something, to a purpose, uh, to a retirement job, a retirement purpose. I knew that most people who retire don't do that. They spend some time figuring out what their next phase looks like. And I said, I won't do well with that. But that's not the way it happened. I didn't go immediately to a retirement purpose. I left my work world about a week before COVID hit. Um, So I had a forced cocoon time uh, and I've done amazingly well, embarrassingly well um, during this time of feeling things out. Um, I wrote, I wrote the book squint, which, and it was wonderful to have purpose during COVID. Um, So that was my gift that I got from the pandemic, the, the focus on, on writing the book. Um, I have started to meet people who are becoming new friends, but I realized that forming new friends when you're older takes mindfulness. It takes intentionality to create an opportunity to feel safe, to have deeper discussions and new friends don't become old friends overnight. Um, but they become friends and, friendships that can be rewarding and stimulating. And I realized that I need to be, I need to take some responsibility to enable these new friendships to occur. And that's been an enriching experience during this life, developing new friends.
0: Margaret, thank you for being on our program today. Margaret's book, Squint, Revisioning the Second Half of Life is available at Amazon and many bookstores. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, The Endgame, at theendgame.substack.com. I'm Don Auction wishing you all the best in aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I hope you'll join us for future programs here at The Endgame.